It's time for truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's time for truth exists to glorify God through the edification of his saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I'm your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I'm joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Well, welcome once again, everybody, to another episode of the podcast. Thank you very much for being here and for continuing to support uh, this ministry of our church. Uh, We are grateful that you are listening. If you're not listening, uh, we're just talking. So it's important for you to be there and and to listen. We think this is a valuable platform for the opportunity and the the resource uh, availability for our church and so we're we're grateful for that and those who aren't part who are not part of our church we're grateful for you as well we hope this is edifying to you and we hope that you will also uh, help spread the word and share it around we we'd be happy for that uh, to happen as well so thank you once again for making us part of your day uh, we are once again here in studio we are continuing to consider our distinctive of a being a hymn singing church and so we also have once again uh, my dad Mark Steinmeier uh, one of our deacons at TFBC in studio as well as uh, Jim of course is here uh, how are you today Jim oh such a great topic we, we love talking about these things and and we should be recording before we capture the recording because you know we could just continue to talk about this topic of hymns and really we talk about the old is the new and really we're so blessed we have a multi-generational we've got lots of older people we have lots of gray hair and gray beards and then we have a ton of young people getting married and having babies and the the blessings of wisdom across multi-generation um you know this danny we learn from younger people as well as older people and so even in talking to them about things that we've learned when they feed back to us we're learning as well and so it's this this constant growth process. And I think this topic of hymns is so important because people consider them old. And the reality is, is, is they are new to us. Their churches do not do this. So I would contend to you that, that we are offering new music. We're on the cutting edge. And we're on the cutting edge. We're on edge. the cutting edge. Exactly. And, we uh, are contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We don't want to say that. No, yeah, we, no we, smoke, we, no smoke machines. The old is the new, new. Yep. And, and so we, we want to love these things, and we are want to be engaged in, in these things. And we'll talk more about uh, that as we go along. We're looking forward to another great time together on the podcast. Well, last time we left off, we were uh, just be really getting into some of the historical uh, elements of things. We were talking about the, the recovery of uh, some of the principles of corporate worship uh, following the Reformation and the development of, really, at the time, new hymns. And and so we, we certainly are not uh, pitting new against old. We recognize that every song was new at one time, and we, we identify that that's really a, just a red herring uh, most of the time as something that is uh, just meant to sort of dismiss this conversation and to just identify that, well, we just want to sing the new stuff and everything was new. So uh, let's, you know, you can't just stand on old music. And that's all we're trying to do. We're not just saying old equals good and new equals bad. That's certainly not what we're saying at all. And we'll get more into that detail. But we want to kind of pick things up 
we uh, we want to talk a little bit more, uh, I think, really about the 1800s uh, a little bit. We had a, a really rich history of early hymn writing, and uh, the but the 1800s uh, and really around the Second Great Awakening, there really was a a the, the beginnings and the and the transition to a more uh, we, we would identify them even though they're in the 1800s uh, of a more modern approach a, a different way of approaching uh, worship and uh, hymns and so even some of them being categorized as hymns one of the things that we've noticed that that they've some of them have even made it into our hymnals is that some of these hymns in the uh, mid to late 1800s as uh, talking with that even offline uh, around 1850, you really begin to see a turn towards a a new style of hymn writing and song and song singing for the church. Dad, would you talk a little bit more about uh, your understanding of that and what we've kind of run into and even in our experience? Well, <clears throat> I do believe it is a result of the um, pressures of the culture at the time. That was a time where Darwin and his thinking was having a huge impact on the church. It's putting a great deal of pressure on on the church, and uh, the church did not respond that well. Um, in prior times, uh, if a person was asked, how do you know that's true? They would definitely say it's true because the Bible says it's true. But uh, starting with Darwin and the pressures that that was putting on the church, the church started retreating into more of an experiential type of, of a testimony. Um, you uh, ask me how I know it's true, it's true within my heart. And that sort of mentality started to show up in the music, uh, a more personalized, experiential type of uh, um, songwriting that started to uh, come into the church not all of it was was bad um, a lot of it's it, a lot of it's very good and as we talked before uh, much of it was to try to push us to a higher plane uh, unlike a lot of the the modern songs which are just to help us uh, reflect on what God has done for us and and how wonderful he is um, but uh, nevertheless that started to uh, uh, creep into the music. And I think as we look at the music and what's appropriate for our uh, our worship services, that needs to be taken into consideration. And I do, when I select the hymns, I try to, to um, look at what the overall purpose of the hymn is and whether it's appropriate for, for uh, our, our morning worship or our worship service in general. And I think also what we see in some of those uh, late 1800 hymns too is we do because of getting more spiritual and the uh, increase of I think more um, Arminian type theology as well. You start to see some uh, some cracks as I'll be generous uh, some cracks in theological precision in a lot of the hymns because when you're focused on your experience. Uh, you kind of get your eyes off of the prize in terms of uh, precise doctrine and truth. And so that's one of the things I've certainly noticed in some of those hymns. They might have uh, nice and beautiful elements in their in their melody and in the musical part, but in some of the words, they get more squishy, uh, and they get squishy in terms of the emo emotive and 
doctrinal elements to them. And so we certainly uh, see that, that there's, again, there's a flow, there's history, there's context. And so once again, you're not going to hear from us uh, if it's if it's old, it must be good. No, every every song and every area of our worship should come under the the, the scrutiny of our principles and and our purposes, not simply by whether or not it's uh, it happens to be young or or old. Yeah, and I would say just like we're analyzing scripture, if we look at if you study the scripture and you write down what you believe it is, and then you look at five conservative Bible commentaries and every one of those is against what you said, you probably want to go back and dig in again, if that makes any sense, or, or even ser- seek wisdom of another man and really look at that. Because the reality is, is there aren't many things that are new, right? I mean, all of this has been flushed out. And so we can leverage the work that was done. And so important for us to understand if there's a new way, we should be very skeptical of it at first. Uh, that's that's so. a very good point. Reminds us, of course, of, of the COVID uh, era, the reality that this really isn't the first time there was a conflict between the church and the government. And so there, we, there's historical things that we can look to that can be informative and helpful for us, for those who have gone before us. So uh, we have the, the, the benefit of hindsight living where we live in an amazing time, and we have such access to information that we can uh, really work through these things. So that's a, that's a great point. And, and a little bit on our last episode, we talked about the chicken and the egg. Does the music come first or does the bad theology come first? And I, I point to that Francis Schaeffer book. It's How Shall We Then Live? It's a, it's a great book. He looked at a lot of history as it related to art, music, literature, and film. And then the impact that it had on this post-Christian culture that we live in. And his analysis was that it first spread through philosophy and then it went to the arts and the music and the, and the literature and then finally into theology and culture. And so he would say that the music was first. Yeah. So there is an element of it. It drives, it moves the culture and the art often moves the culture in a particular direction, which includes then uh, changing theology. And we, I think we really see that today as well. This, uh, maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but this idea of, uh, of moving people and when, when it, why are so many churches having such a, um, well, not a hard time. Why is it so easy for churches to adopt uh, woke and LGBTQ uh, ideologies? It seems like some of these people are folding so quickly. Well, I think what your point is there, Jim, is well because they've trained themselves. It's too. the muscle memory. That's exactly right. They, right. They're 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 following yeah. what they've been trained to. We're gonna we're gonna flesh that out a bit and more. Schaefer did a great job. He actually started with Beethoven and the last quartets of Beethoven and how that impacted the the nominal culture before it even came into the churches. Before it even came into to worship music, it was already happening in in this other culture that impacts us. And we've talked about it. There is no neutral, right? Yeah. You know, it's one or the other. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, let's fast forward a little bit in our just uh, treatment of some historical elements. And I want us to fast forward. There was a recent movie. We've talked about it briefly previously. And part of this also gets us into a little bit of, of more of your lifespan, Dad, in the life of the church. And that was the Jesus Revolution. This is going back to uh, really the product of some of the 60s and then get developing this this uh, version, uh, this model of, of Christianity and, and so forth in this uh, Jesus revolution in the 1970s and some of the downstream effects that it has had up to even today. And so uh, we want to fast forward there a little bit. And one of the things that, that just stood, stood out to you, st- stands out to me, is the, the, the utilization of music for a purpose. And that purpose was as a tool, as a, prag- as a pragmatic um, uh, 
tool in order to um, pursue a noble effort of evangelism. Uh, maybe you can talk about that and why, what, is there anything wrong with that? Well, first of all, let me say that um, uh, I've been listening to and reading a lot of, of critiques on the Jesus Revolution, and um, whether you're for or against it, some of the stuff, the points we're going to be addressing are really expressed on, on both sides. But one of the articles that I was reading that was particularly critical of the movie Jesus Revolution is that it was saying that it totally and completely underestimated the role of music in that movement, which I thought was an interesting critique, uh, that uh, the movie does, to a certain extent, in a, in a very short little scene, show how the piano and the organ were moved out and the... the um, guitars and amplifiers and whatever were, drums were brought in. But it wasn't made that big of a deal. This person's contention was it was a huge deal and that the, the movement was floundering until they brought in contemporary modern music and then it exploded. It was really, that was the, the impetus for the explosion of the revolution. Um, but uh, it, as I said, both of people who are critical and people of the, who loved it, both point out these points. One, that that the music became a, the primary evangelical tool to win the lost. And um, it also, that our church services then became entertainment-oriented. Well, let's stop right there for a moment, because I think there's those two things are related. Because, well, what's wrong with winning the lost? Is, isn't it sort of this element of by any means necessary? And did people get saved? If they do get saved, if it quote-unquote works, then why wouldn't we just continue to, you know, lather, rinse, and repeat? Why, why, wouldn't, we, why wouldn't we adopt that then? Well, that certainly has been the motivating argument. That's been the motivating argument for... Uh, uh, the modern music uh, movement ever since that it works. It's pr it, pragmatism works. This is a, um, a a tool that brings people in and that you can get them saved. And it's uh, hard to deny that people weren't saved during that time. But then does the end justify the means? Does, does the... Um, uh, the methods that they employ, uh, is that something that we need to, to um, copy in order to get the same, same results? And I think that that's something that um, is questionable. That well, I'll say it's more than questionable because one of the things that we, uh, we talked about before when we did our series on what is the church and, and those types of things— and when we talked about the elements of the purpose of the church, the purpose of the gathering of the saints. What is the? We've already talked about this in the previous episode. We've we see that the gathering of the saints for corporate worship is Godward focused, and when what what this shift is in in using music as an evangelistic tool is 
is that the, the church is no longer gathered for the worship of God. The church is gathered in order to attract non-believers. Yeah, he will not lose one of his own, regardless of how we approach it and what tools we use. Does that make sense? And so, but it doesn't. It, that then doesn't justify the tool. That's my point. Is it yeah. wasn't the tool that did any of the any of the saving. So you know you can't put any more emphasis in man than than we do. And I, I think that's the thing. Is it does, Danny? It, it literally it cheapens God, right? Well, and that's how you get to an entertainment. So that's why I said they're related. When you yeah. when you move the when you shift the focus from the purpose of the gathering of the saints for the purpose. When you shift the focus of the purpose of worship as a corporate gathering from Godward to uh, you know to to focusing on Him to His Word and so forth, and you shift that to a good purpose, uh, a good work that the people in the church are to do, and the church becomes the evangelism center, that it becomes that Sundays, the Lord's days, become an event-based uh, um, expression, an event-based. Um, event that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It becomes an event. What happens is, is that you've then turned the focus to man, and now what is it, what do you need to do? You need to be pleasing to him. Yeah. You need to give him what's cool, what he likes already. Uh, uh, Dr. MacArthur talks about the idea of of reaching fleshly people according to the flesh. Yeah, a seeker-sensitive church is not about worshiping God. It's being sensitive to the seeker, which is obviously there's no such thing as a seeker-sensitive church, but that's I mean, that's the point is you've you've completely shifted the emphasis from That's right. the worship of God to what can I do to accommodate and make a a seeker comfortable as far as putting a Starbucks in the lobby. Well, then what happens you, there's just a subtle shift then from that to even if that's not your focus, because a lot of churches haven't haven't really necessarily adopted that uh, or or rejected a lot of the problems with the seeker model or the evangelism effort, they're not even as evangelistic. They're really about it becomes if it's still about man though, it, it becomes about entertaining them and keeping right. them. What you win them uh, uh, with is what you win them to, and so now you have to continually. Uh, entertain them in order to keep them keep them there, right. and so that's another element. It's again an, an element of man centeredness as opposed to a high view of God in what we're doing. So that's another big element in this uh, discussion of contemporary worship. I believe that was a, a big shift in terms of emphasis. Um, and again, it's not denying that we are to be evangelistic, uh, but in terms of what is it that you're trying to attract them with? What are you attracting them to? And uh, music is a powerful thing, and, you, and I think the way in which we utilize it, uh, we have to uh, demonstrate great care. Yeah, and you, you put too high a value on a, a cultural or a manly-based thing, like I'm leaving the church because the band is no longer there, or I'm leaving the church even because the pastor left, or I'm leaving the church, and mm -hmm. it's like you're thinking about it wrong. Yes, it becomes a low view of God and a low view of what he's doing in his church. Right. So we're not committed to the church. We're committed to what my experience is there. Right. You're, you're not divorcing the family of God when you're leaving. Mm. You're leaving because you don't like fill in the blank. And when we're talking about that type of, uh, we would say, kind of shallowness, we're really getting into this issue of our approach to church has become more man-centered and more me-centered than it is uh, for for God to Him, right? I think those are some important elements there. So, really, in that area of the '60s and then into the '70s, 
uh, again, you have your the hippies and the culture and all the things that have that that, that took place there. Uh, there was a shift then to uh, a more pragmatic and man-centered approach to music. There's, Anything you want to add there? Dad? There's also a shift to uh, music that appealed to the youth, and that was a big. Um, <clears throat> argument that was continually brought up during those times. If we don't change our music, we're going to lose the youth. I don't know if that's used so prominently now, but it certainly was a, a big, um, constantly used argument back there in the early 70s, 80s. Uh, our music and our forms became oriented towards the youth and inconsiderate of the elderly. Um, just basically told the older older people, you can stay if you want. But this isn't for you. But this isn't for you, and there's the door if uh, you uh, don't like it. Uh, I know as an administrator of a nursing home, I uh, dealt with a lot of those older people who were the um, Marginalized. Victims. They were marginalized, and they were very... Um, vocal about the fact that they're marginalized. I have a number of stories that uh, are, are sad and even tragic and um, that where the, the people just just uh, had such a difficult time dealing with how they were rejected. They were rejected. Abandoned. Abandoned by the church. Right. And that's really, I, I, I think we underestimate... <coughs> why that's such a, a poor thing because I, the, the emphasis in, in scripture is really the honor of the is honoring father and mother it is the honoring of the aged and the recognition of the of the value of wisdom from older saints from those who have walked with God for for a long time and, and instead when you turn it over to the young who know better or the young who we desire to attract uh, you, you've you, you've really uh, jettisoned, a, an important part of of the tenor even of Christianity, uh, which is really about honoring those and 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 those who should be in charge should be those who are also of of greater wisdom and and age and experience. There's, there's a reason why, as an elder, you're not to be a novice, right? You're not to be a new believer, um, because you're young and you don't know enough and you don't have enough experience. That, that comes with 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 that wisdom and so the the dishonoring I think that's an important element the dishonoring of those um, older saints th that was a difficult thing we just don't use words like that anymore we, we've lost all those words of honor and dignity and and preference respect and, and honor yeah exactly and and those are gone and it's now convenience you know well my dad is in a nursing home because he's better there really? Or is it just more convenient for you? And look, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying nursing homes are all bad. I'm just saying your attitude in utilizing them becomes very important, and your respect and dignity and honoring of your parents becomes critical. And so the young people want what they want, and ultimately there was when you talk about revolution, it was the overturning of uh, an un older understanding and orientation of the church, and it became this is for the youth, and if you want to be. Uh, on the cutting edge, if you want to be cool, if you want to be vibrant, if you want to attract people, you got to be doing it for the youth. Um, and and I think one of the things that we uh, I'm grateful for is the number of young people, young families that we have, and we're not doing it for them. Right. 
we're doing we're doing our, what we are are doing our best for the Lord, and we see who the Lord brings. It's interesting because when we see this in culture, when we see young movements in culture like rock music or the sexual revolution of the '60s or any of that, we call that out, don't we? But in the church, it never gets called out. It's very interesting. Well, so here we are calling it out. <laughs> the elderly are a protection for the church and a preservative for it. Yeah. Um, and I think we've really lost that. Uh, we certainly lose that when we turn that over to the youth. Yep. I think that's important. So we, so then we, we saw in, in the history of the church, uh, we, we saw the movement then towards man-centered and entertainment-oriented, as well as evangelistic, uh, I think shifting from evangelism to entertainment, because what you won them with is now what you win them to. And so now the, there's a lot more of an emphasis in, in concert-like things, uh, bands with a look and feel of a, of a concert. And, and what we led last episode with this idea of the recognition that what we're doing is a corporate gathering where what we're trying to emphasize and promote is the participation and the togetherness of, of what we do together as a body. And uh, we were talking actually off uh, mic just before the episode of some of our experiences in con more contemporary styled churches. And when you look, go to a contemporary service, when you look around at the, at the congregation and, and everyone else, which, I mean, you're not supposed to do because you're supposed to have your eyes closed, apparently. But uh, if, when you look around at the congregation, what you find very often is a very low level of, of people singing, and low percentage of people singing. Why? Well, when you're at a concert, you're actually... Um, being sung to, but you're not encouraged to sing and to be a, a part of it as much. And so it it uh, th that gets into other, other issues as well. We'll eventually talk about the idea of the choice of songs don't actually um, welcome a participation. They're hard to sing. They're not designed really for, some things are not designed for corporate singing. They're just not. And so, but yet a lot of people want to have a, the song that they hear on the radio on the, on the, on air one, they, they want to sing that in church, but it's not really meant for the congregation. It's actually, you're, you're meant to be sung to. Yeah. Or the drummers washing you out. Okay. I mean, that goes to another issue, the volume, right. the speakers, and uh, you've got a, a whole quote unquote, what praise team, or if you don't have a praise team, you don't know, apparently know what you're doing today. But uh, it, the praise team and the band and the drums and the speakers and the amp all the amplification, what you have is it's so loud, you can't hardly hear yourself sing, let alone anybody near you. And so those are, again, those are things that are done on purpose. Those are things that are, that's a philosophy. Right. And that is part of the outflow of this movement towards, and, and they'll argue till they're blue in the face that, oh, this is all about God, right? Well, it, we'll, we'll We'll do that. But what you do and how you do it will either accomplish what you say you're doing or it won't. And that's what we're having to be discerning about is to, does this actually accomplish what we are are trying to accomplish? Yeah, and I'll just say Truth Family's praise team is larger than any church in the valley because it's our whole body. That's right. <laughs> including our children. That's right. That's right. And, and 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 there's a there's even an intentionality on my part in leading the music too is to have a, a step away from the microphone. Um, Something Jim needs to learn <laughs> <laughs> uh, is is that element of of you know we really just want to get things going and get um, have some measure of clarity and a little bit of leadership. I, I, you, there's a balance there because sometimes people need to hear what they're following, so there's something true to that. 
But uh, in terms of, you're right, Jim, the idea is that we want our whole congregation to be lifting our voices together. And that's that's an important part, because that's a distinction from going to a concert wherein someone is performing and you are just listening. This uh, worship, see, the worship service on the Lord's Day is to be an immersive experience wherein we all participate. Right. And we want to really promote that, uh, too. One of the criticisms about hymns is sometimes is that they're hard to sing. Well, they aren't necessarily... It, it's kind of ironic to me because some of the modern music seems so difficult to sing uh, in terms of the mechanics of the, the music itself. Um, but the reality of is that we can learn to sing um, anything, and it's not really hard to sing if we put the effort in. So I'd just like to encourage everyone to to put the effort into to learning those and they will um, come to the point where they are not hard to sing. If we don't sing them or if we resist singing them, then they will always remain hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we make an effort on participating in it and, and joining in the corporate worship, they will soon cease to be hard and will be uh, learned and loved um, and, and we underestimate, we've been talking about this quite a bit, um, Jim and I, and we've talked about it with uh, in church in a different context, but the reality of the encouragement that we are when we are there, like to, to be at church and to greet one another, the importance of greeting one another, we talked about that on, on a previous podcast, that being at church, but also being at church and singing and singing with the people around you, you actually bring people along with you and you encourage them. And if and if you're singing with gusto and with joy, uh, it is it's contagious and infectious, not infectious in a, in a bad way, but it's contagious and in, in, in it brings other people along with you. And it's we a huge encouragement. This, yeah, we talked about this, Danny, even in the design of the chairs and the way that we set them up. You know, some of the old beautiful churches are arced, you know, and you see that at, at Grace, for example, Grace Community, where it's a little bit of a rounded effect because we want to be singing to each other as well. And mm-hmm. it's it's not the person up front or the, the worship band up front. It's it's all of us worshiping God in music and songs. That's a good point. I'll just highlight something real quick. Because you, just as Jim was starting to talk there, you said it's a huge encouragement when people are singing and singing loudly. And when we sing loud together, I mean, that's when, why do we like Shepherd's Conference so much? Well, it's because of all the voices that are singing with gusto, right? There's something to that. But um, in our church, I I just think, uh, I just want to highlight, the thing that I see that gets the most smiles is when Artie is blasting it full <laughs> full voice, right? Yeah. It, it borders on yelling at times, but but when when young Artie is, is and and Sammy sometimes are just singing so loud that everyone knows who that is and everyone can hear them, even though he's in the second row, the people in the back and I, and I and the people that smile the most are older people. Mr. Berg, for sure. I love it. I when when the children are crying, when the kids are singing, even if it's a little bit disruptive. I smile because that's discipleship making. That's what's happening is those kids are learning how to worship. So it, w- I think I, I, I would just echo that encouragement to participate, to, to work at it, and to enjoy it, and to, and to make it uh, something that you, that you value for yourself and for your family. Uh, additionally, there's other elements of, uh, of music, it's such a huge topic, but w- in the movement towards a man-centeredness, there is a movement towards, we've touched on it, this idea of ginning up, of creating a emotion 
slash experience. Uh, that's what part of the volume is. That's why the speakers are turned up loud because there's an environment that is uh, fostered. There is something that is is, is being um, uh, worked at building in in a in a corporate setting. Dad, maybe can you talk a little bit about the power of music to uh, manipulate and to and to create feelings and experiences? Well, it's a very pop, very powerful medium for um, for for creating emotion. Uh, and so I think that we need to um, recognize that and be careful that we don't abuse that uh, fact uh, factor that's um, inherent in music. Um, and hymns can be used that way too. We've talked we talked about offline this uh, the recognition of, this, of the the pastor that uses just as I am, you know, in 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 a way that was seeking to create a response to, to make, you know, if, if someone didn't raise their hand or come forward at the invitation, well, we, let's sing it again. Like there, there was play the, it again, play it, play again. it again. The music was, was meant to do something and to generate uh, a response. And so music has a very responsive quality to it or it can uh, certainly. But I think what you're, what you're getting at in terms of being careful about it is, is the reality that we don't want artificial response what well, we're not trying to create something that isn't there we we don't want to act like we have the role of the holy spirit to manipulate someone to do something uh we we want that to be driven by the truth and driven and there's nothing we're not talking, saying there's anything wrong with emotion right it, it, music is naturally emotional or for excellence in music right. that creates an emotion mm. and, and so there's nothing wrong with the uh, having emotions in music. We're not trying to promote a stoicism that is just dry and cold, uh, but it's a, it's about what you're trying to actually gin up by the music itself. And uh, there are ways to do that, isn't there? Absolutely. So we want to be mindful of that and careful about that. Go ahead. Well, just back to the um, what happened as a result of the Jesus revolution, there's a whole new industry that was created that existed for the purpose of introducing new and fresh music. And as you mentioned before, that it can be embraced by the lost. It was meant to appeal to the lost. And then um, that which you used, as you said it better than I can... What you win them with, you win them to. That's, yeah. yeah. Well, so the other element of... uh, I, I was planning on getting to that at a later time, but since you brought it up, we'll talk about it now. This issue of of the industry, we'll, we'll probably have to save some of it for later also. But this idea of industry, the idea of this is a big money-making uh, industry, and there's a vested interest in making sure that you all want to sing the newest songs. Absolutely. Because there is, uh, there is absolutely a profit motive. Now, we're capitalists. We're, we, are, we believe in... in business and invention and industry and even the co- copyright and different things like that. that that's not, that's not the, the issue. Um, but just like whether it's big pharma or if, if it's big Eva or it, you know, it's, it's big government, uh, when you get into big contemporary Christian music, uh, there is a, a huge amount of money and there, have a, there is a vested interest in making sure that the churches are engaged in that which is the newest. Right. 
Is that a little bit of a fair way to address some of that? Totally. And I think just like the public schools, you know, I, I, when we were considering homeschooling, we talked about it. The, the, at best, the public school curriculum is vanilla. Does that make sense? It, it just it, it feeds vanilla ice cream to 90% of the students that are there. And every one of those students can be different in the way that they learn. And so they're forced into a vanilla learning style because that's what the curriculum forces you to. And so these large industries do the same thing, Danny. They have to attract to the masses, which means there's no expectation of growth out of it at all. It's just this continuing movement of how do I attract the masses? How do I attract the masses? How do I adapt to the culture? How do I adapt to, you know, and, and we see that in the church. Well, are you saying too, Jim, that some of the songs just continue to sound the same? Yeah. There, there's, well, what, what's... 7-Eleven. Whether, whether it's that or whether it's... Just the melodies too. Yeah. There's a, there's a modern style right. that is used um, amongst the various uh, composers it's not just one composer. It's a, it's a very ubiquitous style that's used in modern music over and over again. Isn't that amazing? So there's when they found something that kind of worked, yep. it turns out that it's, it's very repeatable with just very, again, vanilla and only slight, very only a few sprinkles on top of, the, of that vanilla. But there's, there is a motive. Producing good music is actually hard. But it's but when it's become easy to mass produce, when it when it becomes something that is, um, it's part of a business, it's part of an industry, uh, you end up getting a lot of vanilla. I think is what you're kind of totally. pointing to, Jim. Right? Yep, exactly. You don't you you have you have people that are aren't necessarily even writing the songs; they're just writing the lyrics, and then the music or the the actual the the tone and everything comes from a different group, and so they're they're taking they're just merging these things together and. It's all commercialization. Well, there's even a movement to take the old hymns and put them into the new style. There's a whole website for that, um, taking the old hymns and putting them into the modern method. Right. In some measure, there's kind of a, a lack of creativity there. Uh, that, that goes back to your Francis Schaeffer thing, that it's so hard for them to come up with a new movie. They're constantly having to take all the old movies, all the all the old superhero movies, as a for instance, and you have to like reinvent. The Little Mermaid has to now be reinvented, right. but it has to be reinvented according to modern, uh, modern sensibilities, right. right? So The Little Mermaid now has to be black. Because uh, you know that's the way you would retell an old story, and that's what a little bit what you're getting at, Dad. I think is this is this really uh, tinkering with and and it, it, taking everything and mold putting it into a new mold and treating it in this new fashion. So that, anyway, just an interesting element that feeds the industry. It feeds the industry. It feeds the industry, right? Yeah, that's that, there's a there's a big element to that, and we'll talk more about that later because I think we need to address a little bit of. Uh, again, why we sing some some things that aren't quite um, in the vein of the industry, and we'll talk more about that at another time. A little bit further down this road, though, of this historical movement towards more man-centered, more experiential and emotional um, and event-oriented music in in church for the corporate gathering, uh, is also this this greater emphasis. Dad, you've already mentioned some of this of this personal, individual. Uh, individualized effect of the music. And and we've noticed this. I remember we've talked about this for decades, uh, th- this idea of of the inward turn that music, it, modern Christian music has m- moved people where uh, it's close your eyes and it's lift your hands 
And it's that is very much an inward turn wherein you're now ignoring the entire congregation around you because you're just having a private moment with Jesus. Darken or dim the lights. Right. And, and because it's about, it's now about a personal experience and that's the movement towards, uh, that's a movement of the music. And you'll find that both in the words, but also in the the style and the, what the music makes you do. It, it's funny, we, we've, we've done examinations and observations of this over the decades where uh, some churches will, will do the blended music. One song, uh, the, the, the people have their eyes closed and their hands lifted and they're swaying and they're, the, the music is causing them to do that. The next song is a hymn and whoa, whoa, no, no eyes closed and no hands raised. Why is that? Because there's actually something in style. There's something in the way in which mu- certain music is going to ev- uh, um, invoke a particular type of response, even a response from your own body. Some music is great to dance to, but there's also going to be, uh, but that music is going to be also moving you towards even a type of dance. Uh, There's just, music is that way. And so what we're, what are we trying to accomplish in a corporate worship? Are we trying to get people to dance? And sometimes it was, it was funny. Sometimes the music, it, it, it invited people to dance, but we weren't Pentecostal. So people had to even resist that from their own, in their own body. They actually had to resist the music because it was calling them to do something even in their bodies that we would recognize on some level, at least, that wouldn't be acceptable. It wasn't proper and appropriate for what we were trying to do. But yet a lot of people who are involved in church music are not taking that into consideration uh, very much or haven't given that much thought. What is the music trying to do? And again, there's this personal individualistic approach. uh, And a lot of that, um, it goes both ways. We talked about this a minute ago, the idea that the the music can move the theology. But once you also develop a theology, you, it, re, it goes back into the machine and you produce more of that music. So part of that is, is, an, is a move theologically to a very individualistic and pietistic version of Christianity. See, Christianity is about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, that's really all that matters. And yet, what, as we've been studying more of the Old Testament, as we've been uh, studying more church history and so forth, we've we've seen a, a greater value on on the whole church, on a whole people, on the body, and and that's why it's such a shame when you gather the people together so that the individuals can simply focus on themselves and their personal relationship with Jesus. We need more we and us and our in our singing and in our worship. Um, and sometimes we struggle with that with some of the hymns, but we, we, we want to sing more hymns and songs that, that highlight and call us to that corporate um, togetherness that we are doing. Because otherwise, I can stay at home and sing songs about me and my relationship to Jesus. But when it comes to the body together, we're focused on what God is doing for all of us and among us and with us. And I would say that highest point of worship him first, we're there to worship him exactly. first, and then here's what it means for us together. And I think that's the key. And so if you don't put God first in worship, well, then you do have 200 or people fundamentally worshiping their own way or, or even, even thinking their own way. And so if we can tie our thoughts to him, this is why we're here, then the emotional side should elicit how do we get deeper into that thought. And, and that's going to affect 
the what sty- songs you pick. The so- style of your music and what songs you pick. Right. That's exactly right. Well, I want to I want to pop the top on a what we talked about off mic is a huge topic. But I want to introduce us to it. We're not going to explore it out all now. We'll probably leave it for uh, a greater conversation next time. But I want us to talk a little bit about this idea of pop music, uh, pop culture, and pop meaning popular. Okay. Um, And Dad, you've done some work and some study on this uh, as well, some thinking and some writing on this. Uh, Maybe just talk a little bit about uh, what is pop culture, what is pop popular music, and maybe we'll just start to tease out a little bit as to uh, how that affects the church and how maybe we there is some elements of resistance we've got to be mindful of. Well, I think it really does affect the church. It's affected the church in a big way, particularly since the 1970s. Um, prior to that time, the church actively resisted that notion of going along with what was popular in culture. Um, but once uh, the 70s hit and the pressure started coming from the Jesus Revolution in particular, uh, the churches started to uh, um, capitulate and to uh, give in to this idea of pop oh, culture. Flow. Yeah, and basically the idea is that pop, pop culture promotes that which is new and fresh. Um, improved. Improved. Um, the definition that I, I came across was that uh, pop culture is um, a culture created by marketers to promote consumption um, and production. And it's something that was uh, actually promoted by our government after World War II to stimulate the economy. Um, through the 1950s in particular, I can remember all the commercials were new and improved, new and improved, new and improved, wider clothes. And and uh, that was just hammered into the American public. And um, it eventually worked its way into the church in the 1970s that we had to go with that which was new and improved. And I don't believe that uh, as, uh, as a, a church... Uh, people now don't realize the impact that that has had on our churches, um, that every church deals with this notion of having to deal with the, what's the new latest, what's the new, the latest and the greatest, the newest, the freshest. What's everybody buying? What's everybody doing? Right. right? And, and we want to do what everybody else is doing. Why? Uh, not really certain, but that's, that's, uh, well, everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. And that's really how deeply ingrained pop culture has, um, been in our lives, uh, and in our churches that it's very difficult to resist the new and the improved. Well, you said something off Mike, uh, about that. And that is that pop culture emphasizes a discontentment with with yes. what you have uh, and and it and it makes you anxious for wanting something better newer greater you're missing out you're missing out if you don't have what the cool kids have right it's discontent you're, you're it literally you have an anxiety built up inside you for something that you don't know and then they fill it in with what they give you next so right 
It's really interesting. And in that has a, oh, go ahead. Jeff. No, no. In technology, I kind of did what's the history of electronics and music because I'm a technology guy, right? And there's this guy, John Michael Cage. I don't know if you've ever heard oh, yeah. of him, oh, yeah. but he's kind of the guy that introduced this. And and he's known for his indeterminate music, which means open-ended. And the other thing is non-standard music. I mean, it, it's all about this instability. It's all about never bringing things to a conclusion or, or a belief of there is a standard that, that we live towards. Music that it, creates an anxiety. Exactly. It's, he, that's my point. He, is he tried to create re- random music. Exactly. Random music and, and he failed. Yeah. And, and But what's important in understanding this for, for the church and, and why there has been such of this uh, music wars, as sometimes people refer to them, is because you have people who are saying, we love the music that we have. We love the music. And even, again, we're not saying thou shalt not have any new music. That's not the point. Part of the issue is this hunger, this anxiety, this, this I want to reach for that which everyone else has. Everyone else has the cool cool kid music. Why don't we? And that's a, that's a pressure. That's a flow that it becomes... Um, and the part of the point of that is that when you get that moving and you get that momentum, you become the old fuddy-duddy who is standing firm and not moving with everybody else. And so you kind of look, uh, you look bad to some people, or you look like you're just resistant to change, or you don't like new things. It's not that you have to realize that there is a sense of needing we need this in our families. We need this in a lot of different ways, but we need it in the church. The ability to resist the flow of culture that is popular. And so when it comes to resisting LGBTQ, XYZ, whatever, you, you, you have to resist the flow. And one of the reasons why we were talking about this off offline and I want to bring it online. The reality that why is it so many churches it seems like they folded easily and quickly. And I would maintain that one of the reasons why they've folded in their theology and their doctrine is because they have been trained by, by, the, by the pop culture, by music as, as part of it in their churches, is it is it's there's a constant movement towards something newer. Yeah, you got to stay on the latest fad, Danny. That's that's the whole point is got to get with the times. And the reality is is that fad that that next fad is infinity. In mm-hmm. other words, it's an ever evolving moving target based on the culture. So now you are not counterculture. You are basically being molded into the culture. That's where the denominations go. Right. The denominations slide towards the world. They right. slide towards the the predominant culture. Right. And and so it's the it, there must be the resistance to just reaching for that which is new and getting along with the cool <laughs> kids. So how are we salt and light? We are different from them. Mm. We have to be different. And it's not again, I'm not saying we go ridiculously the other way, but the reality is is that we have good music today that has been historical that we can use that is new. So and that, that applies across all of our worship and all of our theology. That, you know, that has to be, that, that is what we're saying is... That's, is that's why we look the at world creeds today. and confessions. Right. That's why we look at old documents. Right. That's why we read old dead theologians. Right. Uh, that's why we, when we deal with a crisis such as COVID, you have to deal, look at 
historically, how did other people throughout history deal with this theologically with those conflicts? And none of those churches would ever say they don't want to pass the, their beliefs onto their children. But the reality is, is if you're not practicing consistency in historical methods of doing things, then you're not. You're creating that instability that your children are going to feel. If you don't have a particularly, resistance. Particularly in this idea of pop culture. Yeah. That um, if you can't resist the latest and the greatest and the newest fashionable thing, don't expect your kids to hang on to what you think is, is important. important. And yes. then we're, we're doing well because we had X number of kids at VBS this year. And, you know, again, I'm not picking on VBS, yeah, but I am picking bit. on it. Yeah, yeah. but I am. It, it becomes a metric of, of change. And then when the next thing comes in, you have to move to that and measure that. That sounds very businesslike where instead of God doing it and you participating, it, it's fundamentally you doing the work. I want to jump on the point you just made there, Dad, and that is um, it's already happened. See... In growing up in the 80s and 90s and uh, early 2000s of the, in the church, isn't it funny that we don't sing any of those songs anymore? They're, they're gone. They're gone. They're, they're they gone. went the way of the dodo bird. Yeah, they're gone. They're gone. And that's pop culture. That's, the, that's all virtually definitional of pop culture. Yes. Because it's popular for a time, and then you move on to the next thing that's popular. Yeah, who's Keith Green? And what I mean, happens... I mean, literally. What happens is, is that, as you pointed out, your children... Are constant are going to be reached for their thing, and there's there there's nothing for them to ground themselves. And so, when the music is constantly shifting, guess what? Other things also shift too. And so you continue. It, it, there is um, there are things that are tied together. There are things that go together, and uh, and and there's a mentality. And and what you were bringing up there in this element of pop culture, uh, pop culture is a form of a wave. Right there, there is a there is a current, yep. a flow. Uh, there's a flow, and and so one of the elements of why this is a distinctive in our church is because we're trying to plant a, a stake that isn't just swept along with the flow and going along with the caught up in the wave. We're trying to say we're, we're we want to be grounded in intentional, purposeful, uh, God honoring worship. That is also edifying to the saints. That is grounded in history. That is honoring the old, the, the gray-haired, the older generations. That has a view towards connecting us to history. We haven't talked uh, as much about that. We will, um, but we, we there is a sense of yes, we are the resistance. Yeah. We are the resistance. We are not just going to go with the flow of what everyone else wants to do. Even though, as we pointed out earlier, Jim, we do sing new songs. They just happen to be written a long, uh, a long time ago yeah. when it comes to, but but when we're not singing the newest songs, we're just not the cool kids. Yeah, and I I don't want to do it to resist, if that makes any sense. We want to do it to worship God. Right. Now, part of that is is that you are resisting That's uh, right. going to the culture. And the reason we're doing that is because it's God honoring. That's right. So, you um, know. I think that what we're trying to do at Truth Family Bible Church is <clears throat> helpful for the our purpose of, of of developing and maintaining a multi-generational church. Yes. If we're always singing what's new, um, that you're going to find as you get older that you would really like to hang on to that which you liked as a younger person, but that's now gone. And your children 
are either someplace else or some other church singing their contemporary songs while you sing your old songs that have died, the, gone the way of the dinosaur, um, or uh, in our case, we, we teach the children the same songs that the older generation, that the, the middle generation, so forth, so that we actually are not only promoting a multi-generational church for the time being, but also for the future. That's an interesting point, because really what you're saying is a lot of churches' philosophy of ministry and music has a, has a shelf life of about 15 to 20 years tops. Yep. And then they, and then they go out of existence, and then right. you're either doing something new, different, or they're adapting and changing to something else, or they become the old church of their parents, not likely. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? So you end up with you. You need more. You end up having to have more churches, uh, and and you and you don't end up where you end up fragmenting the body of Christ into this by, is an older people church by demographics by demographics. Exactly. This is an older people church. This is a younger people church, and and, and what we're saying here is that this is. Uh, what we're attempting is to uh, have a multi-generational and, uh, and long-term view of the life of the church. Well, that's very good. I think that, that's been a good conversation. I think we have more to talk about uh, in the future as well, but that's all the time we have for Truth Today. We want to thank you for joining us, and until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and His church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's Word is truth. Truth.